0: Well, Terry just reminded me, uh, this is December. Therefore, the first Monday of a month is our prayer meeting. So we hadn't announced it anywhere else. But I invite you to join with us here, and we will pray together. We'll have the chairs spaced out in an appropriate way. Um, so all the same rules apply to our gathering on Monday night. But I uh, encourage you, if you are able... Please join us uh, for our time of prayer together as a church. All right, well, let's take our Bibles. We're going to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 20, as we continue uh, our uh, exposition through the Gospel of John. Um, Customarily, at this time of year, I would have launched into a kind of an Advent series, but we spent so much time away from the Gospel of John, uh, I just felt compelled to get back to it, so... um, we are never poorer for being anywhere in the Bible, regardless of the time of year. John chapter 20, 11 is where I'll begin reading through verse 23. Let's give our attention to God's word as it is read. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb And your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is God's word. We thank him for it. I want to pray again, uh, even to express what we sang together as a prayer, that we would see Christ. So would you join me in praying? Our Father, this, your living and active word, lays open before us, and it is about your Son, our Savior Jesus, and so we see him here in these pages. But Father, they need to be us more than just words on a page, they need to be driven into our heart, and that is the work of your Spirit. And so we pray that you would give us attentive minds and willing hearts to receive the food of your Word, so that we would, as a result, be transformed, that our minds would be renewed, or that we would see Christ, and that that would have a transformative power in our daily lives one that would impact us for all of eternity. Lord, you know that a mere man cannot accomplish the things of God. So I pray that you would cause your work to be done beyond what I say. May we hear from you now so that Christ is exalted. And it's in his name we pray it. Amen. How is it that you imagine your, your own future? I don't know if you ever do this. When you, when you look a year down the road or five or ten, what's that picture look like? Who is there? What will you be doing? And beyond this life, what's your legacy? What will you leave behind? Now, I've tried... Imagining what the disciples had in view as they walked with Jesus a a year or or five or ten years down the road. As they were taught by Jesus, as they saw him perform these miraculous signs, they understood that he was the Messiah, but but what did it mean to them? And perhaps they envisioned Jesus taking a physical throne in Jerusalem after, after he expelled the Romans, of course. And maybe they, these disciples of Jesus, imagined themselves that they would be part of some kind of royal cabinet. That's not far outside of possibility of thinking because James and John had in fact asked Jesus to sit on his right and left in his kingdom. But whatever that picture was, I, I don't think it ever included Jesus being condemned to death and then crucified in public shame, even though Jesus predicted it. Yes, the Gospels record how the disciples simply couldn't grasp it. They would wonder what kind of saying this was. And so when Jesus was crucified, I think it brought an abrupt end to their picture of the future. Now, in the section immediately preceding this, dealt with this a few weeks ago, Mary Magdalene Peter and John had discovered that the tomb where Jesus' body laid was empty. And then the Bible text we're reading, we've just read together now, Jesus reveals himself alive. But what Jesus begins to do here is he starts to give them a new vision of the future, a vision that was, I think, quite different than the one that they had imagined. And it's a vision that Jesus not only intended for them, Jesus' immediate disciples, but also for us and all all who come to believe in Jesus through the testimony of those first disciples so as we consider this text this morning and as we think about what may lie ahead for each of us as disciples of Jesus i want to unpack this and apply this and i've i've chosen four words really as headings for our for our deep dive into this uh, scripture as we seek to understand it and apply it. So I'm going to give you the four words up front. Um, they are proof, place, purpose, and promise. A rare alliteration. I don't usually do that. Proof, place, purpose, and promise. Well, let's get to it. First of all, a proof. Now, would you believe it if I told you that I've been to the moon? Now, I could tell you quite emphatically that I've been to the moon, really. I could attempt to describe the surface of the moon that I, that I rode in the space shuttle. But you would be very right not to believe me unless I produce some kind of proof, right? You would need something tangible, a, a picture, a news article listing my name as one of the astronauts. Maybe the testimony of others who are uh, with me in the NASA space programming, really a silly illustration, I get it, but something so unusual, so rare, but still very much humanly possible demands proof, right? Now consequently, resurrections, dead people returning to life, they are rare. Even in the Bible, they're rare. And for Jesus' disciples to declare it To be true that Jesus was raised, they needed proof. Proof that merged his earlier declarations that he would indeed rise with their own personal experience, and that multiplied over many witnesses. And that proof started with Mary Magdalene. where, As we pick up the story here in in the Bible text, she stood weeping outside the tomb. Now, she was the first to discover the tomb being empty, and she had left to tell Peter and John that it was empty. Now, at some point in time, she returned. We don't know when. She may have returned with Peter and John or sometime later. But I think we can understand, if we, as we read the text, she returned in order to solve the problem of the missing corpse. And as she's there, she is overcome with grief. Overcome. And that word, weeping is, is, is convulsive crying. It's, it's not just you know, a, a stray tear down the cheek. She is deeply, deeply troubled, grieving, even wailing. She's overcome with grief, and she decides to look inside the tomb. And there she sees two angels, and that's what the text tells us. They're in white, and they are in the place where, where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. Now it's interesting to me, she's not startled at all by them. And they ask her a question, Woman, why are you weeping? Now I can't imagine what she's thinking. Why would I, wouldn't, why would I not be weeping? The body is gone. My Lord is gone. See, in her mind, Jesus was dead. But not only was he dead, but his body was, Was missing, and if his body was missing, presumably it had been violated. Adding and compounding her grief, she couldn't even envision him having a respectable burial. Where is his body? And so she says to the angels, They have, they, whoever they is, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Who they is in her mind, we don't know. But her grief is multiplied. At this point, it had not crossed Mary's mind that Jesus might be alive. As I said, she's looking for a corpse. Now, as she turns away from the tomb, she says amen, and the text tells us she supposes him to be the gardener who asks her the same question and yet adds another. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And maybe in her mind, this gardener knows where Jesus' body has been taken. And if, she, and if he does reveal that to her, she's prepared to go get the body and take care of it. And at this point, Jesus simply reveals himself by speaking her name, Mary. For Mary, the proof is not just seeing, but hearing Jesus speak her name she knew his voice and in that moment he called her name with power it was just as jesus had said earlier to his disciples when he said in john 10 my sheep hear my voice i know them they follow me now from this interchange the other disciples needed to know too so Jesus sends Mary on a mission. He said, Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. The text tells us, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her, presumably all that he had said to her. Now Peter and John had seen the empty tomb. Mary comes back to them and fills in the story and to the rest of the disciples. She had previously told Peter that Jesus' body was not in the tomb. Now she comes to tell them all that she has, in fact, seen him alive. If we follow through the text, what happens? The disciples gather together, and we can say without Thomas, because the next section tells us that he was absent. So they're presumably in that same upper room where they were with Jesus for the Passover, probably. And there the doors are locked. which which gets me thinking about what they understood from Mary. Did they actually believe her? We don't know. But they're there in that room and the doors are locked. And, And John tells us in this unfolding of the story that they are there behind locked doors in fear of the Jews. And they knew. The Jews had, in fact, hauled off Jesus at night. It's night. And maybe they're thinking they're next on the hit list because Jesus did tell them, and it's recorded in, Back in 16 too, Jesus told his disciples, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. So it's not surprising that they're in fear of the Jews. And what we don't know is what they understood about what Mary had told him. Did they think she was telling a tale? Or did they actually believe that Jesus was alive? We don't know. But then, verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Now Jesus knows they're fearful, but Jesus proclaims peace. And they get that peace at the sound of his voice. And he confirms right then and there, he proves to them that he is the same one that was crucified before their eyes. Because when he said, peace be with you, When he had said this, verse 20 says that he showed them his hands and somehow he revealed to them his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus gave proof that he was alive. Now, you know, in John's telling of this, uh, they were glad seems to be an understatement. I'm sure there's more wrapped up in there. They were glad, but the truth of it was confirmed to them. And it has been written for our sake. Now, what Mary Magdalene and Jesus' disciples needed was to see Jesus alive. They needed to hear his voice, they needed to see his wounds. And we, we, brothers and sisters, need to know that they saw him and heard his voice. And we now have their testimony, and we can trust it, because the telling of it is the inspired word of God. Now we get this. We get this. This becomes magnified during the the holiday seasons, whether that's Christmas or Easter. Some look at this record of events and just treat it like some kind of myth, as if it doesn't matter that the events actually happen, happened. For them, it's a sort of a made up story that teaches some kind of spiritual truth, but, but that won't do at all. That won't help at all. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. This, this matters. That Jesus is alive, that he proved himself alive, it matters. Because if it did not actually happen that Jesus rose from the dead, we'd be half-witted fools to put our faith in him. And that's no blasphemy because the scripture says it. We'd be fools to put our faith in Jesus if he was not raised. This matters. We trust And follow the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the one who was crucified and buried in a tomb, the one who came back to life on the third day. So let me ask you, and this is vitally important, and all who are watching at home, do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Do you believe that he died to pay the penalty for your sin? Do you believe that he returned to life and came out of that tomb so that you could have eternal life with him. The Bible says that if you believe that, you will be saved. And so let me urge you, if you have not done so, trust Jesus today. Trust him now. Trust him now. And... If you're among those who have already believed, it should change everything about your life, shouldn't it? This single truth should change the trajectory of our entire lives. And let me ask you, has it? We have the proof. Second word I'm using for a heading here is place. Place. We have the proof. And we have a place. Now, uh, my kids, our kids are, are grown and out of the house. And there are times that our home feels kind of quiet. Kathy will say that. So we look forward to special occasions, uh, birthdays, special holidays, or just a random visit from them. And this is normal for us to, to like that because both Kathy and I had experienced from our own families that, that we were always welcome at our parents' place. We always had a place at the table. And so we've tried to live that value out for our own children. We live that out. We trust to the best of our ability for their spouses and our grandchildren. Because they're family, they always have a place at our table. Now, Jesus' disciples, not just the 12, now 11, Judas has betrayed him and killed himself, but not just the inner circle, but all who, like Mary Magdalene, believed in Jesus. They, I can imagine in walking with Jesus that they they had a, this understanding of this special treasured relationship. They had this special access to Jesus. He he ministered to them in profound and very personal ways. They always had a place with him. He was accessible. Now what Jesus here in this scene, showing himself to her, what Jesus says to Mary that she should relay to the rest of the disciples is instructive for us. In understanding what it means to believe in Jesus and what the future would look like. Before he gave her that message, he said this to her in verse 17 Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Now, you read that and I'm I'm startled by it. Why did Jesus say that to Mary? Why did he say, do not cling to me? In her joy, we, we would certainly wonder if she just lunged at Jesus and grabbed a hold of him, or, or maybe she fell at his feet and embraced his feet. And really, on the, on the surface, the statement could seem maybe a little insulting. Was there some kind of impurity in Mary that he could not be defiled by her touch? Well, if that was the case, then he would not have invited Thomas in the next section to actually put his hands in his wounds, no, no. Of course, you can imagine there's been a lot of discussion from the scholars on what Jesus meant here. But here's where I understand this. I think Jesus was signaling a change in the relationship going forward. I don't think Jesus was so much telling Mary not to physically touch him, but rather that he would not be available to her in the same way that she had been accustomed to. The reason he gives Mary, for not clinging to him, that is to say, not holding on to him, is that he is, as he said, ascending to the Father, where he will remain. And ascending to the Father has relational implications for all of Jesus' disciples, and indeed for us. But He says to Mary, But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father, and this is new, and your Father, to my God, and your God. Jesus calls his disciples brothers. He calls his Father their Father. He calls their God his God. So, Mary and the rest of the disciples cannot hold on to Jesus physically, but rather by faith and with the advantage that God is their Father. And because Jesus is going to be there with the Father, Jesus' own, Jesus, who he calls brothers and sisters, have a permanent place with the Father through him a permanent place with the Father through Jesus. This is what the Apostle Paul said in Romans. This is chapter 8, verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, He is there for us. Jesus is there at the Father's right hand for us. And because He was raised You and I who are disciples of Jesus, we are family, we are brothers, we are sisters, we have a place in the family of God and that place is and always and forever will be in Christ Himself. We don't cling to Him physically, we cling to Him by faith. And because and this is so important. Because Jesus has ascended to the Father, our Father, God is not a distant deity to us. Right? He is personal. He is intimately involved in our lives. And He has infinite capacity to be infinitely involved in our lives. I know, I've tried to be a good dad. But <laughs> I think of this and... Occasionally, my children have reminded me over the years how often I've been irritable or distant or uninvolved at a moment. How often was I harsh when I should have been tender? How often did I say I would do something for them only to neglect it? Now I know my children love me. I know that. But they love a very imperfect father. But God is the perfect father. He is never irritated. He is never distant. He is never uninvolved because Jesus was raised, we, whom Jesus calls brothers and sisters, we have permanent access to God, our Father through Jesus Christ. So the writer of Hebrews says this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help In time of need. Now, what's your time of need? What are you facing? And when you think about the next hour, the next day, the next year, when you think about the joys and the challenges of life, when you experience crushing temptation, when you have fallen into sin, when your grief overwhelms you, when the pressures of life are perplexing and confusing you, know this. Know this. Jesus is seated right there at the Father's right hand. At your Father's right hand. And you have a place there, a permanent place, because Jesus was raised. Do you live in the light of that truth? Again, it requires us to stop. When the things you're facing seem overwhelming, when that temptation is crushing in on you, do you stop? Jesus is there. You will find mercy and grace to help in your time of need. Live in light of that truth. Third. Third word here is purpose. Purpose. Now, whether people think deeply about this or not, most people do live by some sort of purpose. Whether it's stated or planned out or written on paper, people live by some sort of purpose. It's, it's, it's shown in the things that they do. Some people, as described in the Bible, live to eat, drink, and be merry because, you know what, we're just going to die. saw a bumper sticker some years ago. He who has the most toys wins. Acquisition. Some people live for stuff. Some people live just for pure self-indulgence. Whatever makes me happy in the moment. Now other people have a a higher sense of purpose. Change the world. Work to wipe out poverty, injustice, disease. Not not bad ideals. Now I don't know what Jesus' disciples thought their own purpose was before he was crucified. It's impossible to get in their minds. Jesus did speak into their lives and teach them. But now, having revealed himself alive after he was dead, Jesus made sure to let them know that their purpose, what their purpose was in the world going forward. Verse 21 As the Father has sent me, even so, in the same way, I am sending you. Sending you. To do what? To do what? Well, we have to consider what Jesus said about his own mission. Luke 19.10, Jesus said this, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now, how did Jesus say He planned to accomplish that mission of seeking and saving the lost? Well, He said it back in John 12.32. He said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. So the way that Jesus would draw all people to himself, would be to be lifted up on the cross. That is to say, to die. That was his purpose. That was the way. By dying on the cross and rising again, that was the way that he would seek and save the lost. And now, because Jesus was raised, in that moment, in that room where they were behind the locked doors and Jesus stood among them. Now, what's coming into view is that one-year, five-year, ten-year, lifetime plan. Understanding then that they existed, their purpose in life was to point others to Jesus, to lift Him up, to exalt Jesus as the one through whom is forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And that same conviction gripped the Apostle Paul After Jesus called him to repent and believe, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, it's important. In the way that Jesus told His disciples, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. It wasn't just merely information that Jesus was giving the disciples to tell, to convey. He intended for them to communicate that it was a message of consequence. And this is where verse 23 comes in. Jesus said, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, this is challenging to interpret. The Roman Catholic Church has wrongly taken this statement and have built a a, a teaching around it that empowers their priests to hear confessions and prescribe acts of penance. And then as a result of those acts of penance, you know, say this prayer, rosary, things like that, these acts of penance, and then give, as a result of those acts of penance, absolution. Jesus did not confer upon his disciples the power of absolution of sin. He did not. And we can certainly confirm this, because when Jesus, because he is indeed divine, declared the sins of a lame man forgiven... Remember the story when they lowered him through the roof, they pulled off the roof and they drop him in. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And those scribes who are in the audience viewing this, they rightly questioned who can forgive sins but God alone. It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. So I take it here that what Jesus meant in saying this is that believing or not believing in the message about Jesus, had the consequence of either being forgiven by God or not. The gospel is a message of consequence. And along with that message about Jesus, who he is, what he accomplished, they, these disciples were to communicate the terms of genuine forgiveness, repentance and faith in Jesus. Jesus. To state it again, believe in Jesus who is lifted up and know eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. Refuse to believe and know that you will remain in your sin condemned. The gospel is a message of consequence. Now listen, lots of people have understood the story of Jesus. Lots of people I've met people in this neighborhood who understand that Jesus is a son of God who died. And in fact, they will acknowledge that he is risen again. But to them, it's not a message of consequence because they are coming to God with their own righteous acts in spite of the fact that they acknowledge a story to be true. The gospel, brothers and sisters, is a message of consequence. That's why Jesus said... If you forgive the sins of any, that's not their forgiveness. If you declare, God gives the forgiveness through belief. And if they believe the message of the gospel, they are forgiven. But if they do not believe it and they reject it, they are not forgiven. The granting and withholding language about forgiveness is very similar, if you want another reference point, to the keys of the kingdom. This is Matthew chapter 16, I should say, and 18. If you're familiar with the story there, it's the, the binding and loosing power that Jesus spoke of that he conferred to the church. So our takeaway is that because Jesus was raised, our lives, we together as the church, have the same purpose as the disciples. We are to make Christ known. We are to present Jesus Christ as the Son of God crucified in our place and for our sin. And we are to present it with the consequence that not believing leaves one condemned in their sin. Now, I've said it, but I'll say it again. The mission of making Christ known is not my individual task. It's not your individual task. It has been collectively given to the church. We are together on this. Now, Jesus stated his mission in different words, as recorded in Matthew 28. Go make disciples of all nations. Luke states it in Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Listen, as we think about how we conduct our lives, as we think about our own one-year, five-year, ten-year, lifetime plans, do you think about how you are part of the body of Christ that makes this gospel known? We cannot stand individually apart from it and say, I don't need the church. I don't need that. Or, or even, well, I'll just do my own gospel sharing over here. Some years ago, someone who was faithfully attending the church didn't want to join. Committed, was, was said he was committed to, you know, making disciples all by himself. I'm doubtful the kind of disciples somebody working entirely on their own makes. God will deal with that person, but we're called together to this task. And as you think about your own life, does your part in the disciple-making, gospel-declaring enterprise, does that factor into your own plan? We have the proof that Jesus was raised. We have a place in the family of God. And now, through Christ raised, we have a purpose a purpose to make him known. Finally, we have the promise. The promise. Jesus proved to his disciples he was alive. He assured them of their place in God's family, and he gave them a purpose. That purpose could seem rather daunting, couldn't it? And it would be. It would be daunting. Make disciples of all nations? Okay. Well, it would be daunting, except for a specific promise that Jesus would send the Holy Spirit. And Josh talked about it in the children's moment. Verse 22. And when he, that is Jesus, had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now some translate it as he exhaled. And said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this whole section of scripture <laughs> it has hermeneutical challenges, interpretive challenges. And so, here in verse 22, it's yet another. And I, I think maybe for some of us, the, the question in our minds is this Did Jesus give the Holy Spirit right then and there at that moment? Did he do that? Or, and, and what does that make of what happened at Pentecost in, in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit was poured out? Think about what Jesus said. In chapter 16, here's how I put this together. What did Jesus mean when he said, receive the Holy Spirit? Jesus said in 16.7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Very explicitly, Jesus is saying his going away to the Father was a condition of him sending the Holy Spirit to them. So what then did Jesus mean by receive the Holy Spirit? I take it here that it was simply the promise of power from the Holy Spirit stated in the present tense, but to be actualized after Jesus ascended in agreement with what he had already said. And this is very consistent as well with the sending command. Even the Father has sent me, I am sending you. I am, present tense, sending. But that sending effect, that is to say their bold witness, wasn't actualized until the Spirit was given at Pentecost. Now much can be said about the role of the Holy Spirit in in conversion, in even the Apostle Peter's declaration towards jesus you are the christ the son of the living god how did he know that because jesus himself said to peter flesh and blood has not revealed this to you it's not something he came up with on his own it was a divine revelation certainly the holy spirit has been involved throughout history in bringing people to faith in himself but the unique empowering for witness jesus was promising consistent, in fact, with what Jesus said. Acts 1, it's recorded there. While he was staying with them, this is in this period of 40 days after he was raised, he showed himself to his disciples. While he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And that promise was fulfilled to the disciples. And here's the news for us. Everyone who turns to Christ in faith has the same promise realized in them. We have the proof that Jesus was raised. We have a place in the family of God. We have a purpose in the world together. And because Jesus was raised from the grave, we have the Holy Spirit who empowers our gospel witness now. Right now. And our witness is our words backed up by behavior that is in keeping with having believed. That is to say, our witness is backed up by a changed life. And that changed life is empowered by the Holy Spirit. I've often said this. I don't think we have the slightest inclination towards obedience. Genuine heart obedience, not external obedience, but like in the heart, where I'm not just obeying God because it's listed in the laws and because somebody's watching me, but inside where it says what I desire deep within. I don't think I have that, and I don't think we have that apart from the Holy Spirit. And when there's genuine life change the words that we speak about Jesus being the one who forgives our sins because he went to the cross. And the words we speak about the new life we have, they have authenticity because the Spirit has brought that conviction in us. And so because of the Spirit, our lives are marked by true repentance. They are marked by growth in holiness. They are marked by a desire to do the things of God and turn away from sin. And our witness in the world is realized when we join and motivated, I would say, by the Holy Spirit, when we join with other believers in the local church to work together to make Christ known and call others to repentance. And when we work together, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, we we have the Holy Spirit in us manifesting His grace in different ways so that we function like a body, doing different things so that together we can accomplish the thing that we're called to do, the purpose that we have in the world of making Christ known. And as we, when we gather together, lift up Christ, exalting His name, telling of His goodness, telling of His grace, and its effect in our lives, Jesus draws people to Himself. So let me ask you, as a disciple of Jesus this morning, what's your vision of the future? And we don't know what's going to happen to us. And I'm not talking about the the specific details. And and I know what this is like. We can get wrapped up thinking, well, I'm going to acquire this thing. Maybe we'll get a bigger house. Suburbia, right? Or what are we going to do on the other side of the pandemic? You know? And we can have these very... And listen, we enjoy our families, the people that God has given to us. Certainly my picture of the future involves my grandchildren coming to believe in Jesus. But there are a lot of temporal things that can kind of get a grip on my heart, aren't there? And yours, I suspect, too. And I need to reset. I need to see Jesus raised and know that that reality should change everything going forward. And that doesn't mean I quit my job or you quit your job. It <laughs> doesn't mean you need to stop working in the Air Force or bending metal in the factory or working in the hospital. But in so doing in those things, you're thinking, I belong to Jesus and I am here My purpose in the world is somehow, some way reflecting the character of Christ and pointing others to Him. And when we come together on the Lord's Day and we encourage each other in this gospel reality and then we go out from this place, we're motivated still more and more and more. We have proof. Jesus is alive. The witness of the scripture and... We have a place in God's family. So it doesn't doesn't matter what challenge you're facing, what temptations are barreling in on you. You can go to God, your Father. We have a purpose in the world. And so when we look at that purpose and we think, "I, I don't know how to do that. We can go to the Father, our Father, who is far more interested in exalting His Son than we are. And we can ask Him, show me today how to exalt Jesus. And we can have every confidence that because the Holy Spirit has been poured out, there will be an effect. Somehow, some way, through us, Christ will be known. May it be so. Because Christ is raised. Because Christ is raised, I trust that you have a one-year, two-year, five-year, ten-year lifetime plan. We're living for him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the reality that Jesus is alive and forgiveness of sins that we have and the promise of eternal life. And Lord, you keep us here on this planet. You didn't immediately bring us to you when we came to believe. And because that's a reality, you have a purpose for us in this world. I pray, keep us faithful. Keep us faithful to live in light of the resurrection of Jesus, not consumed by temporal things, but consumed rather by eternal things. So that when this world passes away, we will with delight come into the very presence, your presence, in the presence of the Lord Jesus, and with joy see him bodily until that day, Father. Father. Keep us faithful so that Christ may be exalted through us. Amen.